21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik. Je m'appelle Kata. My name is Katu. Comment ça va? How do you do? Kata. Katu. <laughs> I didn't you say it, I implied and, it. And, and, and I... Yes, yes, yes. I'm daring you. That was a mistake. Right, I'll introduce myself to get us away from this terribly, terribly embarrassing self-centered topic. I'm Jason Barnard. I'm the brand search guy. I deal with what appears when somebody Googles your brand name or your personal name. Um, interesting enough, that goes beyond just people and companies. It goes to podcasts. It goes to music groups, music albums, uh, software companies, basically anything that somebody Googles in order to either find out more about it or to navigate to the website that will tell them more about it. Um, and it's something I think within our industry that's fairly unique. I don't think anybody else, I haven't heard of anybody else in the industry who's actually looking at this in quite the detail that I am. <laughs> My neighbors were cows and sheep. Ah. Okay. So doing naughty things was, you know, pretty tame. I mean, basically, you'd get a sad cow looking at you and mooing or a sheep kind of running away. And you could be as naughty. I, mean, I was a punk. And being a punk amongst sheep and cows is completely pointless. Where was your town situated? It was in, in, a, in Yorkshire, in the north of England. Uh, north and north of England. It, it was... Um, just before the Yorkshire Moors, so basically as you go out into the countryside, the road just ends and there's this village and there's 25 people live there. And when I was a kid, I was one of the 25 people who lived in this village. And my neighbours were cows, sheep, farmers and three kids who were absolutely not my best friends. So it was a very lonely, probably slightly depressing childhood, but when you have no friends or the only friends you have are sheep and cows, you learn to entertain yourself and kind of motivate yourself to do lots of stuff. What's the way of thinking and feeling when, uh, when you are uh, immersed into punk and that kind of environment? A bit strange. Um, I walked through the snow I would like to say in bare feet, but it's not strictly true, because but it, it sounds better. But it's, it's good I, for the story. It's good for the story. I walked through the snow uh, five miles, so that's eight kilometres, to buy my first ever album when I was 11 or 12. 12. No, I must have been 12 or 13, actually, because it was London Calling by The Clash. And I literally walked eight kilometers to the nearest town that had a record shop to buy The Clash. That is how sad it is to be a punk in the middle of the countryside in the north of England, when you really want to be part of this punk movement in 1979, and you're 13 years old, living in the middle of nowhere with a cow, a sheep, your mother, your father, two sisters, and a couple of hens. What did you take from that period of time? That I would never um allow myself to be put in a situation where i 
had absolutely nothing to do week after week after week after week. But interesting enough, talking about my wife, now my ex-wife, incredibly intelligent lady, she and I have one thing in common is that we both have an immense capacity to find things to do and to learn on our own and to move forwards without other people motivating us. And for me, it was because I didn't have anybody. I was in the middle of the countryside. And for her, it was because her parents lived in a big town and they had a really, really active social life. And they would just sit in a corner with a piece of paper and some crayons and say, just draw. We don't want to hear from you for the next five hours. We're having a party. And so she learned the same skills that I learned, but in completely different circumstances. So she was your good companion. She's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, we still get on incredibly well. Um, we're, we're not together anymore, not because of uh, any immense disagreement, but because... Did you, did you, did you found some, somebody younger? Nah, she's actually got a, a delightful um, co a companion, what do you call it, partner. He's a banjo player. I'm a musician, so she just oh. moves from one musician to the other, which is uh, wonderful. But uh, in fact, we, we uh, my part of my story was that we made a cartoon series together. And I was a blue dog and she was a yellow koala. When I take a splodge of yellow And I take a splodge of red We, we mix them both together, together What colour do we get? It kind of took over our lives and I think it affect our, affected our relationship. And creating these characters, working together, living together, having a family together. We Too lived much. on a desert island in the middle of the Indian Ocean called Mauritius. Um, it, it was a very strange, kind of very intense, very close mm. situation that perhaps broke what was otherwise a perfectly wonderful relationship. And both of you are intellectuals, so probably there was a lot of thinking. Uh, yeah, I think we probably going have, on. I think you're right. We probably yeah. overthought. I mean, Anyways. one thing I would say when you say uh, we're both intellectuals, in fact, my wife left school at 16. But and still nobody she's in her. Intellectual. Yes, exactly. And sorry, that's what I meant is that she left school. And she's self-educated and she's incredibly intelligent and everything. No everything, yeah. shitty constraints. Yeah, whereas I, I come from an intellectual family and did a degree and all the constraints are there. And I, I now would analyze this and say that she helped me to let go of those shackles and, and I can Beautiful. thank her for that. Are you a Harvard boy or Stanford boy, that, that kind of boy or? No, uh, Liverpool. Uh, John Moore's University, which is the same university as John Lennon. Cool. So, so punk and John Lennon, hand by hand. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. So it, it, it's actually a pretty crap university. I mean, John Lennon didn't go to the best university in the UK, <laughs> okay. and neither did I. Uh, so it, it was, how can we put it? It was, it was the least worst of the lower level universities in the UK and I scraped in and scraped out with the minimum of what I could possibly have got um, and, and I, I actually now look back I'm, I'm going to do an interview in a couple of weeks with somebody saying scrap the degree get on with your life um, and I don't necessarily agree 100% with the, 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 the statement as it stands but that degree didn't actually really help me in any kind of meaningful manner what it did do is fill in four years of my life 
which I needed. And I think I needed it less intellectually and more because it allowed me the space between leaving home and actually trying to find a job where, you know, you just hang out and drink beer and pretend to be an intellectual, which, you know, is pretty, pretty rubbish. And it did me a lot of good. And I think it was more the gap than it was what I was actually taught or what I actually did. And it was to learn to live alone in a city after living with the cows and the sheep in the countryside, living in Liverpool was obviously a big change. And pretty exciting, to be honest. So much beautiful pictures. What was the, 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 the ratio good experiences versus bad experiences during that period of time? Oh, well, I can actually pretty much name uh, the good ones and the bad ones uh, in, in terms of like kind of the really big ones. Big experience number one was that I learned that having been an outcast at school, and it was a self-imposed outcastitude uh, because I was a punk and being a punk, you just want, you know, you want to be different and you want to create waves and you do create waves and everyone hates you. And, you know, looking back, you're going, fair enough, I would have hated me too. I was probably very objectionable. And I went to Liverpool and people didn't care. So making those waves didn't make any effect because everybody was like that or more people were like that. So I immediately learned that being objectionable didn't actually count for anything and nobody cared. So it calmed me down very quickly. Then I met a friend. In fact, I met a guy who played the guitar and he said, basically, we decided we would play music together and I wanted to be a singer and he was this guitar player. And we formed a group called Stanley the Counting Horse, uh, which is the silliest name for a band in the entire universe. And it was a blues band and there was no rhyme or reason for it at all. I think the, re the, the, the reason we named the band like that was because we had an Irish friend from Northern Ireland called Peter Harper, who just kept going on about what a great name for a band it would be. And we just kind of thought, yeah, all right, we'll just accept that as a name because at least then we don't have to argue about it anymore and there's no discussion. Um, and and the, the, oh, this is great. The drummer in the band, you've heard of the Sisters of Mercy? Of course. You've heard of their song called Alice, which was written by Ben Gunn, who was the guitar player. He was the drummer in our band. Oh he went God. from the Sisters of Mercy to the world's worst blues band in Liverpool with me and my mate Dave. Um, and so if you ever wonder what happened to, Dave, uh, to, to Ben Gunn from the Sisters of Mercy after the Sisters of Mercy, he joined my blues band, which is ah, nuts, as amazing. a drummer. <laughs> and he was great. He was wonderful. Um, and we, we, we played... I don't know, maybe over three years, we played maybe 40 gigs, 40 or 50 gigs. And my memory per, is that Per just, year, sorry, per year or? No, over the three years. It was 20 gigs oral. a year. So it was, it was a gig every couple of weeks. And my memory of it was, A, Dave did me a big favor letting me sing in the band. B, we kept getting gigs and I don't really know how. And I met up with him 30 years later, like you know, a couple of years ago, three, three or four years ago. And my memory was very much that he was driving it all, that he was doing me this enormous favor and that he was the driving force behind the band. And in fact, it turns out his view is that I was the driving force behind the band. I found all the gigs. He couldn't believe how enthusiastic I was and that he was about to give up music when he met me. But he said, you were just so enthusiastic. And I had been playing with musicians who were just such a pain in the ass. 
and you were so naive and so enthusiastic. I just had to start again. And it's thanks to you that I'm still playing music today. And I say it's thanks to you, Dave, that I'm playing music at all. Uh, and so kind of you look at it and you look back and you think, actually, our memories are actually completely different from the same situation. And both of us got a really big kind of boost out of it. Um, and it kicked us both in what I would now consider to be exactly the right direction from my point of view, at least, because I then went on to become a professional musician and making cartoons with music for kids. Um, and it's all thanks to Dave. If he hadn't shown that faith in me, is my perception. But then his perception, if, if I hadn't been so, not, so naive to think that I could actually sing a song in front of a crowd. And, and, and oh, I love that. I love that as just these kind of conflicting points of view on the same situation. And that was, that's point number one. That was an incredibly big influence on my life. And another one was being surrounded by people who weren't from the countryside learning that people with different cultures would all come together because in, in Liverpool you've got lots of people who come over from Ireland and, and Northern Ireland and you've obviously got the religious conflict in Ireland and Northern Ireland in particular and in Liverpool what's interesting is the Catholics and the Protestants put all that to one side or the people I was hanging out with and were friends and then they would go back to Northern Ireland and they couldn't talk to each other their families wouldn't meet so you had that incredible kind of like cultural situation you're going I was hanging out with sheep and cows which is one thing and all of a sudden I'm trying to deal with all these different kind of things and you're just going I've heard about all this stuff because I'm not stupid and I watched the news and I went to school and so on and so forth but the real life day-to-day -day living with human beings who have got this enormous set of conflicts is both simpler and much more complicated than I had possibly imagined from the countryside uh, so that's point number two. Point number three is that I actually ended, I, uh, this is a, a if you're going to be a, a psychologist, um, I was alone at home in Liverpool. And a year before my final exams, people broke into my house, they took me prisoner and they held me, tied me up, beat me up, smashed my head and I thought I was going to die. And it lasted, what, five, six hours? And that was incredibly traumatic. And I look back now, and it's the reason I left Liverpool was because I couldn't stand to stay there. But strangely, after it happened, I had a year before I did my exams, and I stuck it out for a year because I was determined to finish what I'd started. And I was scared shitless walking down the road every single day for a year because I thought I was going to get killed. And then I moved to Paris. And that's one of the reasons I moved to Paris is to get away from that. Another reason was that I thought I'd fall in love with a beautiful French woman who turned out to have a boyfriend and it was all very complicated. Uh, my mother's a jazz musician and I met her at one of my mother's jazz concerts in Paris and she was 16 and I was 19 and we kept exchanging postcards when postcards were still a thing and the postcards basically said oh I love you this is wonderful how much do I love you I can't wait to be with you and it was all very naive and lovely and beautiful and, um, and looking back you think 
I can't begin to think why I didn't ever think the post person, man or woman, is reading all this shit because it's on a postcard. How stupid are we? So <laughs> writing all these postcards backwards and forwards, and then I just pitched up after my exams, I just left. I left Liverpool as soon as I possibly could. Turned up in Paris and said, hello, we're in love. This is wonderful. And she went, ah, mm, as she opened the door, this is my boyfriend. And it was this kind of very, very tall kind of guy. Um, and I just went, oh, I, and how naive am I? I thought that I was going to pitch up in Paris with this woman. She was by that time 19 or 20 years old. And that these three years of postcards would mean that we had this meaningful love relationship. I'm, I'm mad. I'm completely mad as a hatter. But it was, it was the idea, and I think kind of that's what motivates me, is, is that naive thinking, yeah, this can work out. Why not? Absolutely, why not? And then you go on to kind of joining the band. And, and you look at that, and, and we were reasonably successful. We sold like 40,000 albums, I think, in total. And we were filling up, you know, 200, 500 people for a gig. So it was reasonably successful. But you're sitting in that van and we did 100,000 kilometers a year driving this fucking van to play these gigs in front of, I mean, sometimes it was 500 people, sometimes it was three, three people and a dog, you know. And, and you, would, you would go and you would keep going and you would do a good gig every time because you thought one day, one day, this is going to be a stadium of 100,000 people. I'm going to be a star. This is going to be like the big time. And of course it's never going to happen. Of course it's not reasonable. And of course it's incredibly naive. But if you didn't have that naive thought, you wouldn't stick with it. And kind of... It, it's it's kind of beautiful and sad at the same time because you're looking at this and thinking, you know, you, as a I'm, I'm looking back at it as a as a an older person thinking, how naive was I? Very. How lovely is that? And have I truly changed? And the answer is, oh no. Because I'm still the same today. I'm still doing the same idiotic things and naively thinking it's all going to work out but i mean i mean it always does to some extent but obviously um not to the extent that you expect it to was your mother egocentric back then can i can i give you a measure of just how egocentric and narcissistic she left when I was four, ran away with a jazz musician, leaving my father with three children in a farmhouse they had bought three years before to fend for himself while she went off to have a jazz life with her new husband, leaving her kids behind. Now, if you want to dig into my deeper inner self, you're going, oh, having had want. a child... I cannot understand and I still cannot begin to understand how you can do that. I could not possibly just leave my daughter. One thing it's taught me is, I mean, empathy is one word, but um, I can't remember what the actual word is, but it's appreciation of the other's point of view. I'm trying to be less empathetic because empathetic implies that I care too much about other people. And I have a real problem of being overly empathetic. And empathy 
when you're overly empathetic and you think you can understand what other people are feeling, you're making a mistake because you can't know what the other person is feeling. Um, you, you need to be appreciative, appreciative of the fact that they have an emotion. You cannot feel that emotion. Um, so it, it, it's being more understanding. And I'm trying to learn very late in life that you can't overdo it. You've obviously got to look after yourself. Um, and I think kind of you, you mentioned uh, the egocentric or the narcissistic nature of one's parents in our case. Some, some people end up being the same and some people react completely oppositely. And I reacted completely opposite. What's right direction for you? I've always done what I think is important or valuable. And what I mean by that is, for example, the, the Barking Dogs, which was the group in France that I played in, I thought we were a very good group. I thought that we brought happiness, we made parties, we played folk punk music, uh, we made people happy, uh, we had fans. We, and, and the point wasn't that we had fans and I wanted to feel loved, it was that we we... We turned up in a town and it was a party and people were really happy and they 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 were uh, delighted to have us and I love that idea. And then from from there with my ex-wife, we made the Buwan Koala cartoons, which are cartoons for kids, preschool kids, a blue dog and a yellow koala. And that was valuable educational content that kids and parents loved. And we were bringing positive things to the world with the content, with the cartoons, with the songs, with the activities. And I was convinced that that, and I remain convinced that that is amazingly good content. And I'm very, very, very proud of what we did. And I meet people today. Uh, I met a guy who interviewed me who said, well, actually, I listened to those songs because my kids listened to it 15, 20 years ago. And I meet people who were fans of the, the Barking Dogs from 30 years ago, and they say, we loved it. And I, I, I don't meet people who say to me, I absolutely hated your band, or <laughs> I hated your, your blue dog and yellow koala. And there might be people in the world who think that, but the, the general feedback has been that I've created things with, with, with the other people, with the singer and the drummer and the mandolin player and the violin player and the barking dogs with my ex-wife and the people we made the cartoons with the team in Mauritius who were brilliant. And we made positive contributions to the world. And I am motivated by that much more than I'm motivated by anything else. And right now um, I, I, I spent several years paying off the debts from that particular episode doing work simply to make the money and recently I've got into a situation where that is no longer necessary I I don't need to pay off the debts the debts are, are sorting themselves out little by little and I'm, I'm in a reasonably comfortable situation and I can focus on what I really want to do and it turns out what I really want to do is understand how Google functions not how it functions because you can't understand how it functions it's too complicated but be able to approach Google with something like understanding. That when Google does things, I don't think I've got no idea why that happened. I have a good idea about what, what's happening. And I've got a good idea of what I can do to affect how Google 
will represent me, my company, my products, whatever it might be. And, and I think what I've now realized, I'm in a position today where I think within my industry, I'm respected and appreciated. And my work is um, accepted as being important and interesting and insightful. And my still my driving ambition is still the same, is I just want to understand. I want to figure this thing out. And it's one of those wonderful things in life, and I didn't think I would ever say this. I've come across a, a problem that I know I can never solve, something I will never, ever, ever even come close to understanding. The machine is running much too fast for me, for all of us. But I'm enjoying the ride and I'm enjoying trying. And it's one of those things that you think, I'm actually enjoying trying to understand something I know I will never get to grasp, to, to grips with, which is mad. I mean, it, it's, it's the, an eternal cycle that I will never come to the end of and I love it. People tell me that music is kind of similar. I mean, I, obviously I played music and I was a double bass player and a singer. And once you get really into music, the more you learn about it, the more you realize that you're never going to get there. The more that you're, you're, you're learning and you're learning and you're learning. And it seemed it's 12 notes. It seems so simple. And however much you play, however much you learn, however much you play with other people, however much you contribute and how much you can digest from the rest of the world, you're always on this kind of losing race to master it because you never do. I was thinking very vaguely about writing a book, but it, in fact, what it would, I mean, I think we all do. And then we think well, nobody else is going to be interested, but I could break it into six chunks. So excuse me, you meant to say my first book, yes? No, it would be it would be six books, in fact, um, because so okay. kind of and that well, that's the thing is that uh, I can break my life into six chunks, and each of the chunks ends with a disaster. Something that you kind of think, yeah, that should have laid me down, and I should have not got up again, and I've got up every time, um, and it's not to say oh, I'm this kind of American kind of drivey person who keeps getting up and fighting and uh, but it is kind of that that slow persistence of thinking okay now what now what do I do how do I move forward and it's that kind of constant forwards movement it's not being a bully and it's not being kind of get up and go American-y it's being it's perseverance and there's a really nice word in French for that which is lagnac and lagnac is kind of the equivalent of American drive, but with a really kind aspect to it. It means I've just got energy. It's, it's having positive energy to move forwards rather than drive to make loads and loads of money in, in the American sense, as I would understand it. Um, and I think that the one thing that runs through my life is that um, so far, at least, luckily, uh, bottomless well of lagnac that I've managed to find um you know I mean I've been I've been 
really, 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 really low after several of these episodes and, and looked at it and thought, well, that's it. And then it comes back um, and I'm not a, a religious person in any stretch of the imagination, but I think as humans, we have a soul. There's something in us that makes us the beings that we are for good or for bad, for better or for worse, whatever it might be. Um, and the, the Blue Dong and Yellow Koala story is the one where um, my business partner took it away from us. I was the blue dog, my wife was the yellow koala. I got to the point where I actually think I thought I was the blue dog. And, you know, not, not a good way to be functioning. And then he took me to court in Mauritius where let's say the courts aren't very fair. And he took the whole thing away from me. And it was literally like somebody had ripped out my soul. And I had nothing left. Literally nothing. And I remember... Except you. Except yourself. Well, actually, no, I didn't even have that for maybe three months. I would... Maybe not on a conscious level. No, sure. But I, I literally could not figure out how I would get through the next three or four seconds, let alone a day, for three months. And I've been in that kind of hole. And that was stunningly, stunningly difficult. And I thought, this is it. It's a learning the, process. Beautiful learning well, process. Well, I actually literally thought there is nothing left in me. I understand, but it was a beautiful learning process. Yeah. And, 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 and interesting, I mean, if anyone's been in a very serious situation of depression or, or, or that kind of very low situation is I would struggle to get through every second of the day then and I would I would wait for the evening with bated breath thinking I can't wait for the evening I'll get to the evening go to bed and I would be so scared of going to sleep because I would wake up with ice in my veins so then I would be begging for the morning to come and then in the morning I would spend the entire day waiting for the evening to come and so on and so forth which is a very 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 um, difficult cycle to be in and the day I thought I have pulled myself out of this it took me three months and I remember that I remember very 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 vividly the exact moment when I thought yep that's it I've, I, I'm, I'm building this back up again that's it, that's I, it. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm building this building this back up And, and from my point of view, it was rebuilding what I would consider to be my soul. And um, I would now argue to anybody that it is possible and it, it might, there might be a time in your life when you think it isn't, but, um, and it, it sounds awfully American and awfully kind of motivational, but, I look at, I mean, I'm, 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 I rebuilt, and, and it's not rebuilding my career, it's rebuilding myself. And uh, I think that's kind of, that, that, that for me was a biggie. That was, uh, what is it, 13, 12, 13 years ago now? 
still makes me cry. I mean, I, you probably hear my voice. I mean, I'm crying. But um, 13 years later, it's still a very kind of deep, powerful part of me. And the, 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 that three months remains very vivid in, in how I, as soon as I talk about it, I perceive it. And one thing I did was read a lot of um, Confucius. And he actually says, and, and when you're in it, you're just repeating time and time and time and time again to everybody who will listen. And you are so boring to everybody around you. It's so difficult because you think it's going to make you feel better. And Confucius says, stop repeating it. Every time you repeat it, it's like vomiting. You're vomiting the poison. It's making you feel more and more ill and it gets worse and worse and worse. Stop talking about it and things will start to improve. And I learned to do that. And every now and then I do talk about it like today. But uh, as a general rule, I just simply don't talk about it. Well, my baby don't stand no cheating on my baby. Oh, yeah, she don't stand no cheating on my baby. Well, my baby don't stand no cheating. She don't stand none of that midnight creeping on my baby. True little baby, oh my baby. What's the word for that period of your time, for the, those three months? It was pure fear for three months. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I had to put one word on it, it would be fear. I mean, in terms of imagery, it's like having a big black dog right on your shoulder the entire time, who's about to bite your head off. And you have a, a mixed feeling of thinking, I'm so scared that I would rather just die. And but after you're the human. Fear, Pardon me? And after the fear, what was the next emotion or? And the thing about that is it's really gradual. So there isn't kind of a moment when you think, oh, the black dog's gone now, I suddenly feel better. Um, it, it, it's a really, really gradual process. I mean, I, I told you I remembered the exact moment. And that was because something in me triggered uh, a specific, it was a film that I saw and I thought, my daughter would love this film. And that was the moment that I knew that I'd stopped thinking only about myself. Because for those three months of fear, all I thought about was myself. All I thought about was my fear. And the moment I saw something and thought, yeah, my daughter would love this. I would love to show her this film because I know she would love it. I suddenly realized, oh, I'm not completely self-obsessed anymore. That, that fear and that complete self-obsession has now started to dissipate and it didn't disappear from one minute to the next. It's, I had one moment when it disappeared. And from that moment on, you say, okay, I can build on that one moment and I can build more moments like that until eventually you build what I would consider to be your soul back again, which is caring for other people. So it In is my case, I mean, fuck knows what anybody else is soul is built of but mine mine is caring for other people and and being kind and uh that three months was the period when i couldn't think about anybody or anything except me my problems and the fucking big black dog i don't think the fear is is a weakness it, it's a human emotion where I mean, I was talking to a doctor about it, uh, about kind of the, 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 the cycle. I mean, you were talking about people who overthink. Uh, and this is typically what I, from what I understand, something that happens to people who overthink, who tend to be people who are relatively intelligent. I don't want to throw myself kind of compliments. But 
uh, what what happens is your brain go for me at least was your brain my brain went into a cycle of thinking things through and keeping thinking and keeping thinking and it was a cycle that just got kind of bigger and bigger like a whirlwind and your brain just can't handle it i mean you can't handle that kind of thought process that just goes round and round and round and round and round especially with fear um and one thing and i think that's the reason i'm saying it's kind of a step by step process to build out of it is that you learn that you can break that cycle and you can break it the first time it will break for you know a second and you think that's pretty crap only a second i wanted hours and hours because you just want some relief and then you realize i can build on that second and the next time it's going to be a second and a half and the next time it will be two seconds and the next time it'll be three seconds and literally you're looking at seconds you're not looking at minutes or hours or days you're looking at a second of relief and i think the trick that i used to pull myself back to something like normality was just to think every time i grab one of those seconds it's a positive thing and it's not a negative thing that i then lose it again and that's really hard to convince your brain to accept that as a as a as a thing is to say i've got to focus on the positive thing that i got a second and i've got to focus on the next time i'm going to try to make it a second and a half and then when you make, and this is the other thing is when you get it, i'm talking about how to solve depression here bloody hell when you get it up to 10 seconds and then you have a, an episode where it only lasts 5 seconds it's incredibly tempting to think fuck that's a failure but it's not it's still 5 seconds it wasn't the 10 seconds you got earlier in the day but it's still 5 seconds it's still positive and the next time you can work up to 6 and 7 and those kind of two steps forward one step back is all part of life for all of us every day and if you can see in that kind of circumstance that those two steps forward one step back is actually still progress you've got a chance but then you know i mean uh, i'm i'm not saying that's the solution to everybody's problems for everything but i think the 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 temptation and it's a very big temptation is to is to focus on the fact that you've lost something you thought you had which is the 10 seconds and that by having the 5 seconds you've lost something and in fact the 5 st- seconds is still a gain um but but at the same time kind of like for life and i i i'm trying not to philosophize too generally here but um life is all about that kind of forwards backwards forwards backwards forwards backwards and trying to assess whether you're actually moving forwards or not um and you know i mean in 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 the comfortable western world that i live in at least um you know fucking hell it really shouldn't be very difficult but it can be Regarding your way of thinking and doing things after all you went through do you think you have developed creative part of your brain or analytic part of brain well I, yeah i think uh i actually the, the 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 that particular story difficult though it was didn't actually help in any particular way either side of my brain um i, I think uh 
I was lucky in that when I, I, I came, I mean, basically when my mother left, she was very artistic. My father is very intellectual. Uh, I ended up with the father, very intellectually kind of focused childhood. You need to succeed at school. Went to Liverpool and realized that you don't actually have to succeed at school at all. You can play in the Cavern Club and pretend you're the Beatles and that's absolutely fine. And you can be naive and think you can play in a band and sing in a band and that's absolutely fine too. And then moved to Paris and joined this band. And that was probably the biggest liberating experience was, was just saying, we're just going to travel around Europe and play in the street. And we don't care because we can just set our musical instruments, instruments up, play a, play a little gig. People will give us money in our heart. We're, we're begging, basically. We're playing. We're busking in the street. And it worked out fine. And that, that made me realize that uh, oh, oh, that allowed me to be just completely free and be who I felt like I wanted to be. And then from there, it was, I tried to get a record released. Nobody would release it. So I started a record company. I paid for three nights in a studio. And that's where the pragmatic side came into play. And so I had, from that moment on, I think, throughout everything I've done, the creative side, playing the double bass and singing, writing songs, um, and the pragmatic side of saying we need to make a living, creating the record company, making the records, releasing the records, talking to distributors, the businessy side. And then with the Blue Dog and the Yellow Koala, it was quite similar in the sense that we had the whole kind of business side is you need to make money. But the very artistic side, which was I want to make great cartoons that are educational and helpful to children, preschool children, so that whole time, it was kind of that 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 um, that duopoly, as it were, going on. And I think probably the saddest part was after the the period of kind of deep fear. I ended up with quite a lot of debt and spent ten years just pragmatically working and working and working and working to dig myself out of a hole. And the creative side went completely out the window. Well, not completely, almost completely out the window. And I think that's probably the saddest period in inverted commas. Not that it was bad. I mean, it certainly wasn't bad. But you're kind of saying that the, the pragmatism had to take over because otherwise I would not have made it through from a financial point of view. Um, and... Recent, and that's the interesting thing. I was um, talking to some people in the industry and they said, you know, I mean, you, you obviously know what you're talking about, but we'd never heard of you two years ago. Why not? Why You've completely come out of left field. And the answer was, I've been keeping my head down, making the money because I need to pay the debts off. Now the situation is easier. I can actually start kind of spending some time doing the creative stuff, which is giving conferences doing podcasts, creating this platform, which I'm creating today, which is CaliCube. I'm building this platform uh, with my own two little hands with writing the code and doing the MySQL and the databases. And I've got 10 million things in a database and they all interconnect. And it's all both pragmatic and creative at the same time. And I absolutely love it because it's got this incredible pragmatic side where it's a database with all these connecting chunks and if there are any misconnections, it all goes horribly wrong and falls apart. And as long as I can keep it all connected, which it does, I mean, it's really, really well built. It's built sufficiently well that it does what it needs to do. It's functional. 
I can then dive in and I can think, I wonder what happens if I do this. I wonder what happens if I dig this information out. And I'm discovering incredibly interesting things about Google from this mass of data that I've collected in this database. And so you've got that incredibly structured, pragmatic, practical thing of thinking, how can I organize this so I can then play with it in a creative manner to figure out things that other people haven't seen? And I, I, it sounds pretentious, but wow. I, I discovered the other day, um, well, actually I wrote about it a year and a half ago, nobody really wanted to listen to me, I don't think, about the fact that Google's got a knowledge graph and it's got algorithm updates within this knowledge graph. And I discovered literally third, last Thursday that I can figure out the day that they press the button that updates the algorithm. And this is from this massive data. And I've been sitting on this massive data for a year, a year and a half. And I only thought, ooh, I want to see what happens when I do this. And I looked in and I found these peaks. And they're really obvious peaks when the knowledge graph just goes completely crazy. And there must be somebody at Google. They, they obviously work on it. And then they've got this button and they press the button. And it updates the entire thing. And, and through one day, just the whole thing goes a bit mad. And then it settles down again. And finding that it's like kind of obviously it's 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 discovering something and 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 it, it's such a lovely feeling you think it's the imagination that i have that allowed me to do that because if i'd been purely pragmatic i just would have seen the data as data and i wouldn't have imagined the a what i could find and b what it meant when i did find it Bad cats like to wear hats. Nice mice like to play dice. Big pigs like to eat figs. But lucky ducks like to poker up. Now, this is actually a really nice conversation because I'm suddenly thinking, trying not to swear, but wow, I'm back. It's pragmatic with imagination and creativity all married together. And I've just spent literally 13 or 14 years just being pragmatic and I'm so tired of it. So thank you. It's not thanks to you, obviously, but it's just made me realize that. <laughs>